0: Uh, this morning, we're going to reflect on Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 9 through 19. So I invite you to turn there, Jeremiah 2, verses, uh, chapter 2, verses 9 through 19. Uh, like I said last week, Jeremiah is the longest prophetical book. And after doing a little bit more research, I can confidently say it's also the longest book in the Bible. Uh, the second longest is Genesis, if you're interested. That's by word count, not by chapters. Psalms is actually pretty far down there. Um, So as you would probably expect then, Jeremiah has a lot of layers. Last Sunday, we started thinking about one of Jeremiah's most important layers, which is repentance. This Sunday, I want to start thinking about another important layer, which is worship. Now for us, worship tends to mean things like singing, praying, and going to church. And that's all great. Those are acts of worship. But in the the Bible, worship is a much bigger concept than that because the basic word for worship in the Bible means service, or what we might call religious service. So when the Bible calls us to worship, what it's calling us to do is serve Jesus, which is why in the Bible, worship does mean things like singing and churching. Uh, That's part of what worshiping Jesus means. But it also means how you raise your children and how you love your spouse and how you treat your friends and your neighbors and how you use your money and how you work and even how you rest. Because in the Bible, Jesus calls us to serve him, to worship him with our whole life in every area of our life. And there are a few reasons why God wants us to worship him with our whole life, but the the one that's central to our passage this morning is freedom. So to borrow one of my favorite lines from the Anglican Book of Common Prayer, in God's service, there is perfect freedom. Because in God's service, there is the grace-given fruit-bearing pursuit of peace and forgiveness and love and joy and humility. And in God's service... There are the gifts of rest and security, which produce contentment and patience. And there is just a tremendous amount of freedom that comes from being genuinely happy with what Jesus has given you and being uh, able to confidently wait on Jesus' timing in your life. That is freedom from anxiety and fear, right? In God's service, is perfect freedom. And in God's service, there's also the pursuit of impartial justice And redemptive mercy. And and all of that is because that is the way that Jesus lives in this world. And that is the kingdom that Jesus is building in his people. And serving him, worshiping him, means joining him in all these things that he is doing that reveal and express his kingdom of gospel freedom here on earth. That is one reason why worship is so central in the Bible, in God's service. Is perfect freedom. But when we forsake the Lord, when we stop serving Jesus in all the areas of our lives, we give up that freedom. In fact, as you'll hear this morning, we become slaves. And that's what this passage is trying to warn us about. Specifically, it's going to warn us about what it calls two evils that we commit when we stop serving Jesus. We forsake The Lord of living waters, and we hew out broken cisterns for ourselves that don't hold water. And it's that warning we're going to focus on this morning by looking at three things from these verses. The first is the evil of rejecting service to Jesus. The second is the evil of rejecting Jesus' help. And the third is the disaster and bitterness of rejecting Jesus. So the evil of rejecting service to Jesus. The evil of rejecting, excuse me, Jesus' help. And then finally, the disaster and bitterness of rejecting Jesus. So let's read Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 9 through 19. And then we'll start our reflections this morning. Let's hear God's word. This picks up from where we left off last Sunday. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord. And with your children's children, I will contend. For cross to the coast of Cyprus and see... Or send a Kedar and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are not gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Is Israel a slave? Is he a home-born servant? Why then has he become a prey? The lions have roared against him. They have roared loudly. They have made his land a waste. His cities are in ruins without inhabitant. Moreover, the men of Memphis and Tephanis have shaved the crown of your head. Have you not brought this upon yourself by forsaking the Lord your God when he led you in the way? And now what do you gain by going to Egypt to drink the waters of the Nile? Or what do you gain by going to Assyria to drink the waters of the Euphrates? Your evil will chastise you and your apostasy will reprove you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. The fear of me is not in you declares the Lord of hosts. Thus far, the reading of what can only be God's own word. Let us pray together. Our triune God, we thank you for your word which you have given to us, which we know instructs us in the way of life and the way to drink from the waters of eternal life, which are found in you, uh, the God of living waters. And so, Father, we pray therefore this morning that you would... um, teach us through uh, reflection on this word, how to follow you and worship you and serve you with our whole hearts and our whole lives so that we might experience the freedom that is found in Christ and uh, might call others to that same freedom as well. Uh, Father, may the words of my mouth now as your preacher and the meditation of all our hearts as those called to hear and respond to your word be pleasing in your sight. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing we're going to talk about this morning is the evil of rejecting service to Jesus. And that comes from the first half of verse 13. But since that verse is so powerful, I'm going to read the whole thing again. Verse 13, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Uh, So first, I want to reflect with you on this contrast that Jesus makes between himself and these broken cisterns. Uh, So cisterns are basically like a water tower. They're a place where you store water. Uh, Now, the thing about cisterns, just like water towers, is they are not sources of water. They hold water, but unless you refill them, after using them, they will be empty. Again, it's just like a bucket, if you don't know what a water tower is. You have to fill it, and once you empty it, you have to fill it again, otherwise it will remain empty. In contrast, Jesus calls himself the fountain of living water, and a fountain of living water is the phrase that ancient Hebrew speakers used to talk about geysers or oases that fill themselves up from the water table below the ground. Uh, So you probably know the picture of an oasis, right? There's sand everywhere in the desert, but then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, you have this beautiful pool of water that's surrounded by grass and trees, and the grass and the trees are all sustained by that water, and they drink that water all the time because it's the desert, and it's hot, and they're thirsty, but they drink it. And there's animals that live in that oasis and they drink the water all the time because it's a desert and they're hot and they're thirsty and they drink it. But that pool of water is always full and the grass and the trees are always green and the animal's thirst is always quenched because that pool of water always replenishes itself out of its own abundance. It never runs dry. And the point is that Jesus is a never-ending source of life. He's never empty because he never has to be filled. Water that is life just pours up out of him into his people, out of his own fullness. Which means that we and everyone around can drink as much as we want, as often as we want, and there's never a fear that any of us will ever run out of the waters of life. But what happens when you and I decide that we want to forsake the Lord of living waters and choose to live a life living out of cisterns? What happens when we change from worshiping Jesus to worshiping idols? Well, that's what verses talk about. So verse 10, 11, God says, As a nation changed its gods, even though they are not gods or no gods, even though they don't exist. And here it is. But my people have changed their glory... For that which does not profit. So clearly, the idea is that when we change who we're worshiping, we're trading something valuable for something that is not valuable. But the idea, I think, is even deeper and more profound than that, and it rests on what glory is in the Bible. Uh, So I think it's helpful to think of glory as something that does two things glory is something that attracts you. It pulls you to it because it's beautiful and wonderful and good. And glory is something that changes you for the better, which is why glory glory is related to things like holiness and goodness and love and sanctification and all those things in the Bible. It's why in the Bible, a good wife is called the glory of her husband and a good husband is called the glory of his wife. I got that right. I did. Yes, I did. Uh, because a, a good husband will, through his faithfulness and service and kindness and humility and strength of character and devotion to Jesus and wisdom and sense of humor and all of that that goes into being, go- being a godly man, that good husband will draw his wife to himself and will deepen her relationship with him and with Jesus. It will transform her because he's pouring the life of Jesus into her. And it works the same way with a godly wife to her husband. It's why a king that distributes impartial justice and fosters mercy in his people is called the glory of his people because it attracts the people to that ruler and thus fosters peace, and it transforms the nation for the better Because the people, as they are drawn to that ruler, express justice and mercy in their communities better. And those are just two examples from the book of Proverbs. What about the New Testament? Good question. Paul in 1 Corinthians tells us that as Christians, a lot of you have this memorized, that whatever we eat or drink or whatever we do, we are to do all to the glory of God. Which in context means whatever we do, we are to do it in such a way that it displays the welcoming, holiness-preserving, gentle love of Jesus. It doesn't drive away, but draws people near. And most especially, this idea of glory being something that attracts you and transforms you is why God calls the relationship that exists among the members of the, Fa- the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, glorious because their relational peace the freedom that they have with each other in relationship their goodness their welcome their love is both attractive and transformative it's one of the reasons why in john's gospel jesus that he came from glory that he's going to glory to bring us into glory with him in relationship to the triune god Now, in all these examples, you've, I'm sure, noticed that glory is describing something relational. It's describing relationships. And that's because, while glory can describe things like palaces and mountains and even heaven, it frequently describes relationships that share in the beautiful, attractive, transforming relationship of God. So what Jesus is saying in verse 11 is that Israel's relationship with him was their glory because their life together was both attractive and transformative. It was a life of redemption and reconciliation. Uh, It was a life of devotion, like we talked about last week, where people would work to keep their relationship rooted in love and then strive to restore that relationship when it was broken because of sin. And when the nations saw that glory, they were drawn to it. Uh, And and not even just the nations, when they're own children saw it and experienced it they were drawn to it and transformed by it and in that glory is an amazing freedom because when you live in a glorious relationship with jesus you are not embarrassed by the god that you serve or the way that you live or the kind of life that you are passing on to your children but you know instead that the God who you serve is the God of living waters. Right? Jesus is the God who out of his own fullness pours his relational love and joy and peace and justice and all of that into the lives of those around you as you worship him and serve him. And that your glory is this inexhaustible life in relationship with Jesus And that the more you live with those around you, they are drawn to that same Jesus who can have that same life poured in to them. The God that we worship and live with and serve is the God who can pour that life into our children and into our children's children for a hundred million billion generations and never be exhausted. And who can add our neighbors in all of their children to our community of worshipers for a million, billion generations and never run dry. He's a fountain of living waters. Our glory is this unending relationship of inexhaustible life with Jesus, which can bring in the whole world without having to worry about running out. But if you forsake God for idols, changing that glorious life of freedom for a life of slavery. And that's what verses 14 to 17 are all about. So Jesus says here in verse 14, Is Israel a slave? Is he a home-born servant? Why then has he become a prey? The lions have roared against him. They have roared loudly. They have made his land a waste. His cities are in ruins without inhabitants. Moreover, the men of Memphis and Tephanis, have shaved the crown of your head. Have you not brought this upon yourself by forsaking the Lord your God when he led you in the way? Uh, Now, there's a lot there, but I'm going to focus just generally on this image of slavery, which you can see both in God's question, is Israel a slave? Is he a homeborn servant? And you can also see it when Jesus talks about how the men of Memphis, which was the capital city of Egypt, and Tapanus, which was the capital city of Assyria, have shaved the crown of their heads. So shaving the crown of your head was a mark of slavery. Not of baldness. Slavery. Um, Now we need to understand what Jesus means when he describes Israel as being the slaves of Memphis and Tephanos, these two foreign nations. So back in Israel's day, if you wanted the protection of another nation that was bigger and stronger than you, sort of like the mafia, I'm gonna pay you to protect me so you don't conquer me and you'll keep away this other gang I don't wanna deal with. What you would do is you would offer your resources and your people to them in exchange for to symbolize that unequal alliance, right? That basically of offering yourself over to them as slaves. Your political leaders would shave the crown of their heads to show that your nation was now a slave of this other nation, that they were, you were their servants. And you were sh- saying, in effect, in exchange for your protection, We will act like your slaves. We will serve you. So we're going to hate the people that you hate. We're going to fight the people you fight, right? Your enemies will be my enemies. We're going to welcome the people that you welcome. Your friends will be my friends. We're going to give money uh, to the places where you want us to give money so that you'll protect us. Hey, how's that order of tanks coming along? Of course we'd love to give more to Baal this week. That would be fantastic. So what I think Jesus is saying here is long before they were, this was written before they were actually um, overthrown by Assyria. Before that happened, they were being led around like slaves by worshippers of Baal and Asherah. And that exchange for their protection, they were agreeing to hate the people they hated, serve the gods they wanted to serve. Love what they wanted to love, which were often diametrically opposed to Jesus. So in exchange for the feeling of safety, they gave up the freedom of living a perfect life that served God's purpose, and instead they served the idolatrous nations that dedicated themselves to conquest, enslavement, exploitation, and pride. And uh, this connection then between serving idols and their worshipers leads us to our second point, which is the evil of rejecting Jesus' help. So in giving up complete service to God for these uh, these, uh, foreign nations, they became slaves. But now we want to go back to the cistern and see what happens when this backfired. So going back to the cistern's living water comparison, notice verse 18. And now what do you gain by going to Egypt to drink the waters of the Nile? Or what do you gain by going to Assyria to drink the waters of the Euphrates? Uh, So clearly here, right in context, Israel was trying to fill up her cisterns from these two nations, Egypt and Assyria. Now, an interesting question to ask is, why did they do this? Was it as simple as, you can see tanks, but you can't see angels, And so they trusted the eyes and the heads over the eye of faith in their hearts and they went with these foreign nations. I think that's part of it. That's a good word for us to think about. But it's not the main thing. A bigger, more profound part, a part that we all need to think about is this. Israel did this because they did not want to rely on Jesus' help. Because they didn't want the worship The service that came with it. They did not want Jesus' help on Jesus' terms. Because Jesus would give them physical protection, but that protection came with them working hard to uproot injustice from their court system. That is a major theme in Jeremiah. You'll hear that repeatedly. They would also have to give back the land that they stole from poorer members of their community. So give up wealth and sort of the feeling of physical security that came with it to give someone back their inheritance. They also had to reject the idols that they had adopted so that they could learn to live by total faith in Jesus without keeping these backup gods handy. And on and on it went. Jesus' protection is part of a relationship that is characterized by repentance. And as we talked about last week, it's not that they had to do this perfectly, but they did have to devote themselves to it and to renewing it when it got off track. And what's amazing in Jeremiah uh, is that when Jesus comes to help them, when Egypt fails them and Assyria has turned on them to try and conquer them, Israel will reject Jesus' help. Because while she wanted his strength, she did not want his life of compassion towards those who hurt her, or his welcome for the stranger, or his deep concern for the poor and oppressed, or his contentment with their national boundaries that weren't always growing. Which leads us to what God says in verse 19 which is our final point, which is the disaster and bitterness of rejecting Jesus. So verse 19, God says, Your evil will chastise you, and your apostasy, which is your turning away from God, will reprove you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. The fear of me is not in you, declares the Lord of hosts. And here I want to say very quickly that the Hebrew word that we translate as evil is actually better translated nowadays as disaster or calamity in this particular context. Uh, Because even though it doesn't anymore, the English word evil used to also have this meaning of disaster or calamity, but it doesn't now. Um, So here's what Jesus is saying. Your choice to forsake the Lord of inexhaustible life... And exchange your glory with him and adopt a life that produces slavery and death. And your choice to refuse my help and to repent and return to me because you don't want that kind of service will lead to bitterness and disaster. And I want you to notice too that this disaster and bitterness is simply the natural consequence of that rejection. Your own evil will chastise you. Your own disaster will chastise you. Your own apostasy will reprove you. Your actions will bear fruit that will make you regret your choice. So to go back to this picture of an oasis, which Jesus is talking about, imagine that you were at this oasis and you decided there's got to be someplace better. And so you fill up huge jugs of water because you're going to move. And so you head out into the desert looking for a better place. And as you get out into the desert, you realize your jugs of water have a leak. But you decide, I can make it. right? We don't need directions. I've got this. It'll be fine. And so you're drinking the water because you live in the desert and the jugs of water are leaking. And eventually you run out of water and you're in the middle of the desert dying of thirst with no place to refill your cisterns. That is bitter disaster. And that's what Jesus is talking about. What Jesus is saying is, if you walk away from me, There will only be that kind of bitter disaster because I am the only source of inexhaustible life in creation. I am the only well that never runs dry. I am the only place where forgiveness will never be exhausted. I am the only place where young men can run and not grow weary, and old men will run and not grow faint and fall down. I alone an inexhaustible life. And if you leave me, you will discover that there is bitter disaster that awaits for you. Bitter disaster comes when the things that you look to for stability fail you. And you are left without help and alone and scared with nowhere to turn. It's a bitter disaster when the way that you lived in service to idols created relational wreckage. So at the end of your life, you realize that all the people who you loved, you pushed away. The relationship with your children and grandchildren has been nuked because you nuked it. You destroyed it because you chose a life of idolatry over a life of Jesus. And it's a bitter disaster when you realize you pass those behaviors on to your children and your grandchildren and your friends. That's the kind of thing that Jesus is talking about. In service to idols, there is slavery and death, which is what slavery is. In service to Jesus, there is life and light and peace. So what's the solution then? Well, the solution is found all over the Bible. It's even found in the Ten Commandments, which is behind what much of Jesus is saying in this passage. Uh, So after Telling Israel not to make or serve idols, Jesus says, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And I'm not going to preach two sermons here, but just so you know, a more modern way to translate the word iniquity would be pollution. And just like in verse 9 of our chapter, where Jesus says that he will contend with their children and their children's children. So here, Jesus tells us that the polluting effects of sin pass on from generation to generation. So if you forsake the Lord, there is bitter calamity that comes from watching that way of life pass on to your kids and your kids' kids. It's it's as natural a process as if you pour mortal oil in a stream and watch it go downstream and kill everything in its path. But then look notice what Jesus says he does in the 10 commandments. He shows steadfast love to thousands of those who love him and keep his commandments. It's the solution. Jesus deals with the guilt and he deals with the pollution. Jesus not only frees from judgment, he sanctifies and clarifies and cleans up what was what was poured in to the lives of those around us. Or as he says in Jeremiah chapter 33 after telling Israel that she needs to repent, he says I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me, and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. I will restore, I will unpollute them. Or as Jesus says in John chapter 6, all who come to me I will never cast out. Right? That is, Jesus not only solves sin's guilt, he cleans up and cleanses its pollution. So the way out of our pollution and our sin is to return To Jesus and take up a life that worships him because in Jesus is life and light and peace and that life is more than sufficient to wash us clean and to quench our thirst and our neighbors thirst forever so let's behold the glory of the Lord and let's turn to Jesus and worship him with our whole lives so his glory can shine in us and can attract our neighbors and our children and our friends and enemies to Jesus so they can experience the waters of life pouring over into their lives. Amen? Let's pray. Our God and Father, we come before you this morning asking that you would uh, forgive us for forsaking you. Uh, Whether that has been in the totality of our lives or in some portion of our life, Lord, forgive us um, because we know that in forsaking you, the fountains of living waters we have hewed out broken cisterns for ourselves and become slaves and spread death. And so, Lord, we pray that you would forgive us. We pray that you would cleanse our lives and the lives of those we, those we live with from that, the polluting effects of sin and that you would cause the living waters of Jesus to overflow in our hearts so that we might experience his life to the full. Father, we ask that you would do this because you are good and kind and you have promised that you will not turn away any who come to you And so we come to you in hope and in full expectation that you will do a marvelous thing in our eyes and that you will cleanse us and heal us and renew us and that you will make us to be more faithful to you. Thank you for your kindness and goodness and your promises to us in Jesus. In whose name we pray, amen.